So I'll invite you to take a few deep breaths and bring your spirit right into your heart. As we breathe in this wonderful summer morning, the first Sunday in August, I invite you to come into that heart that is filled with love and gratitude for this center, for the spiritual leadership of this center, for Dr. Patrick and every Sunday as he comes and shares from his heart, and this morning as he celebrates the birth of Max and his wife's coming child and Laura's mom is here from the U.S. with her sister. And so we just hold them in our hearts and know that they are celebrating the expectation of a great and new addition to their family. I'm so grateful for the leadership and service that so many people here provide to this center so that we can come together in spiritual community and truly learn and deepen in our spiritual practice and get a bigger idea of our life and this wonderful world that we live in. So today as we open our minds and quiet them and come into this place of being present to each other and to ourselves mostly, I know that the words that we hear this morning touch hearts and the great energy and high vibration of love is present in this room. I invite you to know that with me as together we say, and so it is. This is August, and I heard this morning that there are five Fridays this year in August. There are five Saturdays this year in August. And there are five Sundays. And today is part of a long weekend. This happens once every 830 some years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so knowing that, relax, because you've got a whole extra weekend to play in. And even if you didn't go to the lake this Saturday or Sunday, or maybe not even Monday, you've still got four more weeks, so that's usually all we ever get. This morning I'm talking about a bigger story, so that's the bigger story of August. We're talking all month about planting seeds of freedom. And we are free to create anything we want, really, in this weekend. Even though sometimes we think that we're kind of locked into the smaller picture, the truth of this teaching really is that we choose our life experience and that we actually do have a lot of freedom in that. My husband and I, Norm and I, went to Tibet last year in the spring and saw the palace of the Dalai Lama. It doesn't even look real in a picture, but when you walk through it, it's just an immense and beautiful, rich place with all kinds of history. And a bigger story about the Dalai Lama, I was thinking, is, you know, he's been, he's been um, really thrown out of his country 
He chose to leave, but he knew that if he didn't leave when he did, that he would be imprisoned when the Chinese invaded his country. And yet when you think about the Dalai Lama's story, the story of his life, the way he's actually affected our thinking about Buddhism, about his sweet message about be happy, and his great message of compassion, and the way that he actually walks around the world meeting with scientists and mathematicians and philosophers and cosmologists and plants the seeds of his Buddhist teaching, which really is a philosophy, talks with scientists and makes the connection for them and for himself with what quantum physics is discovering and uncovering about the brain and about how life works and saying, oh, that's what we teach. I remember when one of our spiritual leaders went and met with them and talked about our idea of God being that we are the divinity that God has planted, that great intelligence that really is an intelligence, not a person. And she explained it all and he said, oh, we believe that, we believe that. I think there is so many connections coming together in our world now because we are so aware of what scientists are thinking about. We're so aware of health and how the brain and our body is so interconnected. We're so aware of the web of life and that when we tweak one part of this web, we really affect the whole web of life. We can go out into the deep cosmos and look back at our beautiful little blue ball and see that there's a little wafer that covers the outside that protects us from and keeps, I guess, keeps our atmosphere in. I've been reading about evolution and thinking about some of the challenges that we're hearing about now because we get so much information, do we not, about global warming, about what's happening in other parts of the world, about places where there's war, about the interconnection of business and profits and why things unfold the way they do that often are more about money than they are about human good. Jean Houston is a person that I took an online class from and maybe you've heard of her. She has a PhD in psychology but really I'd say in many ways she's a social anthropologist. She has worked with the United Nations and she as a very young um, adult and maybe just teenager she worked with Eleanor Roosevelt on how to take what the UN was doing as a message out to young adults and young people in the world. And she has kept that connection with the United Nations. She's worked for many, many years with UNESCO, <clears throat> gone to, to developing countries, to African countries, to countries with completely different cultures than ours, learned from them, and also kind of planted the seeds of empowering them to claim the power in their own life by working with women, with children, and with community leaders, and with heads of government and governments themselves doing leadership development. She says that art, literature, music, all these things that we now have access to, that we actually know their whole history. We now know the history of the world itself, the history of the whole universe we think we know. I'm sure we don't have all the details right, but we can share that information and that we're the first generation really, all of us, my age, maybe older than me and younger, we're the first group of people that have actually had access to all this information and being able to kind of see all these interlocking pieces. We've got a history since the beginning of time of our planet. We've got, we've got a history, whether it's the right one, we've got one, we've got kind of a pervading history. We've got the history of music and of art. We've got the history of thinking. 
We've got the history of religions, all the world's religions. We've got all of this information that we actually have access to and that we carry in our unconsciousness. That we, we have beliefs and we have thoughts that we're not even probably aware of, but that if we really took the time to sit down and say, what do I believe about the beginning of time? What is, what's my knowledge based on since the beginning of religion and since the beginning of kind of the history of humanity? What's my idea of Darwin's theory of evolution? What's my thinking about that? What do I actually believe about other people's culture and countries and their religions? What are my actual beliefs about that? What am I conscious of and what am I actually you know, not conscious of? And so we can't really know what we're not conscious of. We just know sometimes that we see something and we say, I don't believe that. But we don't actually know what it is we do believe. Jane Houston said, it's time for us to grow up, to actually be mature adults and not be children in the way that we have an, an adult God out there kind of looking after us. She's saying that there's an intelligent key within us. It's in every single cell of our body. We're not always conscious of it, of course, but it's running the show inside and that we have cell memory. 14 billion years it's taken, they think, for the cosmos to come to evolve and that we've got all of that in our cells. Stardust, the Big Bang, we carried all of that in the building materials, the building blocks of life, and they all are in us, and that we have this great intelligent key, and that it's time for us to wake up and actually consciously decide about how we're going to evolve as a people and as a planet, and that we are the ones really poised to start doing that. Andrew Cohen is an evolutionary enlightenment theorist, and the next slide talks about him, and he says, I see this journey, this journey that, that Gene Houston is talking about, as the gift of evolution, all the millennia of development and discovery that have led up to you and me. If you're on the web looking at spirituality, you will see that evolutionary enlightenment or evolutionary consciousness, that evolution is one of those kind of key words that we're talking about. And what these people are talking about, many of them with wonderful academic uh, education, what they're talking about is it's time for us to kind of pick up and face up to the fact that we're it. That we truly are the ones creating the evolution. We are co-creators with this divine pattern of unfolding in humanity and in, in all of the world. We are at the forefront of 14 billion years of experiments that have resulted in our life. We are evolution in action, in beauty, in abundance, in consciousness, and this miracle is occurring while living on this beautiful planet in a marvelous galaxy. It's difficult, I think, sometimes to really articulate what we believe and even what this teaching really believes. And so all of the years that I've spent studying and having conversations with you and every once in a while I will see some information and it just makes my stomach go into a knot and I think, well, how are we going to overcome this? How are we going to wake up to the fact that we are harming our environment by the way that we live? And I bumped into this little slide about death, maybe. My, grandson, uh, my grandsons are, are two and four, and so they're big on death, dying. And 
they had a fish that died. That didn't help. Uh, but one day, the four-year-old said to me, Grandma, what happens when you die? Oh, you know, it's hard to know where to go with that in a four-year-old, isn't it? So I said, well, some people believe that you don't really ever die. You know that spirit part inside of us that we just kind of know is us inside? That's not our body. Do you know that little part inside of you that's like you when I look into your eyes? And when you look into my eyes, it's not my body, our spirit. Some people think that part of us never dies and that it even can come back. It can come back into some other person and live again. Some people believe that you kind of go into this space that's all around us, like the air we breathe, and that we are still there. This part of us is still there. So probably four or five months later, he was being hard on his little cat, and, and I said to him, oh, honey, don't be so hard on your cat. You're being so mean to your cat. You could really hurt your cat. And he said, it doesn't matter if I kill my cat, Grandma, because she'll just come back as another cat. <laughs> I think this little gravestone kind of says it too about us, that we've got this sort of spirituality, but then we've got this sort of little crazy childish belief that it's all about the stuff that we're creating in our life. That to be honest with, about myself at least, I can, I can tell you that so much of my attention is on my stuff. We're getting new windows put on the house, we just had our shingles done, I'm thinking about my stuff. Even though a part of me realizes that it's not about the stuff, and you can't take it with you, and it doesn't make you happy. But there is a certain connection there that I think we're always working on to disentangle ourselves from these kind of the icing spirituality that says, I'll do, my, I'll do my affirmative prayer, I'll set the intention, but it's so much, often for me, about my stuff. And Today, as I was preparing this morning, I was thinking, I really would like to distance myself and have a gap in my consciousness that's very conscious about the fact that I want to have a bigger story than just my stuff. I don't know if you have heard of Barbara Marks Hubbard, but she is a futurist. She's one of the world's leading futurists, and I see her often on the web, too. She, She's the co-producer of the Shift Network. She says, crisis is our birth. That this, all of the issues that we see out there in the world are really a, a call to transformation. And if you're like me, that sometimes it is when I'm in the crisis that I finally get to work on myself or get to work on the issue or get the talk done or my mind gets clear and I actually decide I'm going to take action about something. She's saying that this is an invitation this time in our history when, as Jean Houston says, all the ducks have lined up, we've got great communication. It's a system that we, we certainly have access to in the Western world, all of this information. And this, you know, we're alerted to the fact that we have got some crisis perhaps in our water supply and the cleanness of our water, the cleanness of our air, that when we're playing with the DNA of our food, we could be causing ourselves some problems. And that there's one story, which is often the fact that there's some goodness to a lot of these things that we're doing, but there's a shadow to it too. And Barbara Marks Hubbard is saying that it's just, we are really in a great place, you and I, to be able to kind of look at all this stuff and consciously decide what kind of world we want to create. 
that we can, we've, we can really um, get in touch with our spirituality. We've got such access to spiritual teaching that we sense the fact that we are more than just our physical body, that we, are, we have this great consciousness able to create based on our intention and our thinking, setting goals. We know that those makes it easier for us to achieve them. So she's talking about all of this and she's saying, we really are the co with the creator, that we are co-creators, that we are creating changes to our physical body, we are creating from an embryo, we are cloning life, we are changing the evolution of our seeds, we're changing the evolution of our planet. We really are changing it. And she's saying, let's just be conscious of the fact that we are co-creators with the divine and that there is a divine pattern and that if we can just kind of look at the divine pattern rather than just use our intellect to say, well, this is a good idea, and to think of the humanity as a whole as we are designing this new pattern, our human pattern, and to be really clear that we are actually creating the next step of this planet's evolution. Our teaching is a great teaching in that it really does empower people. And sometimes we think that as I mention all these things that are going on on the planet that are really a big story stuff too and they can be a real negative story that you and I really can only do small things and that we can only kind of bloom where we're planted. Mother Teresa said, be faithful in small things because it is there that your faith lies. So as I was looking at for a few days all of the issues in our world and feeling a little overwhelmed with all of the details that I was reading and all the scientific research that's going on, this actually kind of brought me back to my kind of centered place that we are just expected to do those small things that are here in our life and to do them well and to focus on them. I got an email from Reverend Keith Wilcox and he's a minister in... Um, St. Augustine, Florida, and he sent this lovely message out to all of the ministers saying that there's been just a lot of racial tension in the United States and the ministers in our teaching there have put out a lot, lot of things that are, are kind of, um, well, they can make you feel a little inflamed about kind of what's happening in some of the communities and they keep laying our teaching on that to say that um, our, you know, we, our job is to hold the consciousness for the evolving society and that a change is happening and that this crisis really is an opportunity for a change in the culture and in the belief system. Anyway, there is a, a mosque where Keith lives and at the mosque people have been experiencing uh, demonstrators. On July the 16th there were six naval uh, people murdered, shot by a man who had a mental health problem and a severe addiction, but he also happened to be Muslim. And so that happened in Tennessee, but here in Florida, at this mosque, there was a significant group of people demonstrating and yelling at the worshipers as they were coming into the mosque. And Keith belongs to an interfaith compassion group, and his group decided that they would not just treat that they would take action. And so they went and set up a lemonade stand outside of the mosque, between kind of the mosque door and the demonstrators. And all they did was talk to both parties friendly and offer them free lemonade. In the course of the day, the, and the demonstrators said that they were there to fight evil. That was their purpose in demonstrating. 
So in the course of the day, conversations randomly happened, some of them between the people coming to the mosque and that community and the imam and the people doing the demonstration with this little group of loving people in the middle that Keith belongs to. And at the end of the day, the woman told, the, the demonstrating leader told the press that she was no longer going to be there and that they had decided to stop demonstrating in front of the mosque. Keith said that um, the research is so clear that if you know someone that you feel kind of that your group is hostile against this other group, if you actually know someone personally, that you probably don't have that same point of view, you don't have that bias. And they've done a study review of 500 different studies to kind of l figure that out, that what all it really takes to change hearts and minds is to actually know someone in that group. That we can give people all the theory we want, but if we don't actually know anyone. And so the Imam said, it's so unfortunate that when a Muslim person does anything like this, that the American society, some of the American society, judges all Muslims as being like that. And he said, the press is representing us incorrectly. We do not believe in violence. We do not have this position. This was a person who had, was unwell. It's not a representation of our Muslim faith. And of course, we know that. But sometimes we are a little unconscious of the fact that these sorts of things go on and that there really, there's an underlying issue that is nothing about uh, the faith of the person. It's really about the condition of the person in other ways, their health. I sometimes think that this is a new idea, that the divine is threaded through our cells and that, that we really, that there's an intelligence rather than a persona uh, God. And, but my Sir Eckhart lived in the 1200s and he said this, if I am to know God directly, I must become completely God. And God, I, so that this God and this I become one. He also said God is at home. It's we who've gone out for a walk. If I'm to know God directly, I must be completely God and God I. So that this God and this I become one. The kingdom of heaven is within you. The Father and I are one. We've actually had this message for quite a while. It's not a new teaching, really, is it? The intelligence of the divine is threaded through ourselves physically. The divine pattern is in us physically. We are always co-creating with the divine physically. We are the divine in human form in life. It's a great responsibility. There are people who have picked up this responsibility that I think that we know and celebrate them and often they're seen in posters like this and banners and we take quotes of what they've said to inspire us and to reaffirm the fact that the goodness of God is within us and that we are human beings walking around this earth co-creating 
and that we are the people now, this is the time when we are creating and can create very consciously and deliberately. And as we set intentions in our personal life, we can set a great intention for the evolution of our world and what we want to see. By looking at all of these heroes that have lived and looking at the values that they articulated and lived and the, talk, the walk that they talked, we can say, yes, those are the values that I believe in. Those are the values that when I'm setting an intention for this wonderful planet and our evolution, those are the values. These are the seeds I want to plant for humanity so that we truly evolve in, in our divinity as well as our humanity. I think the part that's tough about this for me is there's work to be done. There's things to be learned. There's feelings to be felt that we actually have to take our little boat that is our body and our mind and take the work of actually physically putting it out in the water and testing the current and lifting the sail. Because when we're ready, like Keith was, and spirit calls, we know what we believe. We know what we stand for. We know what we want to create in the world, and we're ready. It's so much easier to have the courage when we're prepared and we know what our beliefs are and we know what we stand for. Because we know that silence is actually consent. And I think it's always dangerous when we act if we've done no research at all on this subject. Don't you feel like that when it's time to vote? And they say, well, which party and which person do you stand for? And you think, I've actually got to do the work now of, and now they've made online surveys, so you can just check out, do you believe this, do you believe this, do this? Well, then you're this. And you think, oh, I don't want to vote that way. <laughs> but I think that's the trouble with, you know, this, with this responsibility of being a co-creator. We've actually got to do, or should do, I want to do, more work to deepen further, to become more intelligence, to use my intelligence key to actually get on board with being a grown-up and taking responsibility for the co-creation of this beautiful world, for the co-creation of my life, for the co-creation of my relationships. It's not enough to be compassionate, said the Dalai Lama. You have to act. There's a part of me that doesn't want to act, that wants to sit on my prayer cushion and think about it and read about it and research it, but to actually do the work, to actually say, I will not use plastic because I will give the world a hand up rather than leave another footprint. I will really do the work of understanding the issues of what's going on in the world. I will get involved maybe with one issue and sort of look at all the threads that contribute to that issue. Because I know from my many years of working in social justice that no matter what issue you start with, whether it's nuclear disarmament, whether it's peace, whether it's hunger, whether it's apartheid in South Africa, that's with the era that I was involved in it, all of the threads are connected, and that once you actually get a sensitivity and a consciousness of that, you start to, to just naturally attract 
information that helps us actually understand issues and, and know kind of what the underlying causes are. And I would have to say for me, many times it was really the underlying cause was money, it was economic, and it was power. And I think that's probably, when we really delve deeply into what's happening in the world, those are probably still the underlying issues. And I think we've got a history of wanting to fight against those things. And this teaching really invites us to open our hearts and to look at this whole world in a different way that's not about fighting against anything, but trying to attract into our lives those things that we truly want. Spiritual activism. We have a real history of, you know, marching in the street, but, you know, yelling our chant. <laughs> and Mother Teresa said, I'm not against war, I'm for peace. I think that's what, that's the kind of, the energy, the energetic, the vibration of love that we want to have. That yes, we can be angry, but we use that angry in a way that's wise where we're not so wild that we cannot stop ourselves, kind of open the gap, get a bigger picture of life to say, how will this serve the greater good of humanity and this planet if I take this action? It's a reminder that we need to act locally to make the change globally. That really all we can do is work on our little place in time, in our little space. But we want to do it from a place of wisdom and compassion spiritually intelligent. I know when Danny Bonko and so many of you go down and serve at the mustard seed and actually make a friend and have a conversation, that it really does change the perception of poverty and who's there. And we do see the face of God in the other person when we're in those situations. And we feel this great joy of service. And we know that it's sacred service. When I was doing social justice work, there was a lot of mad advocacy where we kind of made enemies with Nestle's when we marched in front of their production factory. We made enemies with people that wanted to test the cruise missile across northern Alberta and we said, no way, we were not going to stand for that. Uh, but our attitude was self-righteous. Our attitude was angry, self-righteous, we know. And Pema Chodron and the Dalai Lama and Keith Wilcox, or Ken Wilcox, people who are doing the work are, are saying to us, if we're evolving as a humanity, it's time to serve the world with compassion and love, knowing that if we had all of those experiences that these people are having, we would be walking in their shoes and that we need to understand that. That we need to be able to sit and have a listening conversation where we are sensitized to the underlying causes of some of the issues in our world, that that's the place where we can make a small change. Norm and I have done quite a bit of traveling through Southeast Asia, and we got this wonderful picture of spiritual practice in, a, in an ancient cave in a wonderful place in I think, I think it was in uh, Cambodia. But you could feel the ancient history and vibration of this place, this mystery of life as we stood together and felt spirit and realized that there are just so many ways to kneel. 
There's so many ways to pray. There are so many ways to live in this world. We have so many beliefs. We have such a rich and wonderful art history. We have such fabulous music. We've got so many blessings that are pouring into our lives all the time. I'd like to finish my talk with this poem, and it's written by Victoria Safford. It says, we can all become visionaries. Our mission is to plant ourselves at the gates of hope. Not the prudent gates of optimism, which are somewhat narrower, or the stalwart, boring gates of common sense, or the strident gates of self-righteousness, which creak on shrill and angry hinges. Our people cannot hear us there. They cannot pass through. Nor cheerful, flimsy garden gates of everything's gonna be all right. But a very different, sometimes very lonely place, the place of truth-telling, about your own soul first of all and its condition, the place of resistance and defiance, the piece of ground in which you see the world both as it is and as it could be, as it might be, as it will be, the place from which you glimpse not only your struggle but the joy in the struggle, and we stand there beckoning and calling, telling people what we're seeing and asking people what they're seeing. Moment by moment, connecting to life. I think we can walk a bigger story. I'm interested in creating a future that really is a blessing to everyone. And I would like to invite you to Set that intention with me as we walk into this great new world together. I see the divine within you each time that we're together. Namaste.